0: One of the famous British novels starts with this very well-known line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. In many ways, it can describe our current status. There are so many challenges happening all around us. So many questions, so many fears, so many worries. At the same time, so many opportunities in everything that's happening around us. And we have to live with that sense of the dichotomy that is there between the tragedy and opportunity, the tragedy of the lives that are being lost, the grief that it brings on so many families and so many people connected with those who we know that have passed away. Yet at the same time, there is a lot of beauty in amongst the tragedies and so many opportunities to come closer together as a community, to reach out to others and to show kindness, support and encouragement. The same is true spiritually. While this is a really challenging time where feelings of grief and perhaps fear and perhaps even anger can be very much enveloping us. We are reaching out, looking for some hope, looking for some vision looking for a way in which we're trying to make sense of what is happening. And this is why the series that we planned actually at the beginning of the year called Awakenings, looking at some of the revivals in in the scriptures, in the Bible, are coming at such a good time. And it is because I don't know about you, but I need that sense of a spiritual awakening. I need to be more than ever spiritually alive. And the question of going back, people sometimes say, when can we return back to normal, back to what it was? I I wonder if we shouldn't do that. Maybe that's what this isn't about. It isn't about returning to quote unquote, the normal that we had, which perhaps wasn't as great as we thought it was. Maybe it's about going forward with a sense of being spiritually awakened. And this is where this is coming in so great. The king that we're looking in whose life and under whose reign this awakening is happening is King Hezekiah. And he's coming at the back of about 16 years of fierce idolatry where his ancestors were really keen to bring as much spiritual compromise as it was possible in the nation of Judah. And he's stirred up by the spirit of God and just two months into his reign, he begins this process of cleansing and restoring and he starts with that he starts with the environment of worship which is a temple and he we looked at that last week he begins to bring a sense of newness and freshness into that but he continues this and it can't be just an exterior uh uh, 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 looking at the environment of worship but it needs to go deeper down into our hearts into our souls into our spiritual beings and this is what is happening and what's, what we're looking at today. And this is where we're going to learn at how he dealt with sin very seriously. It's what I call soul surgery in this. Let's look at the text. So it's Second Chronicles chapter 29. And we're going to begin to read from verse 20, more or less through, but we're going to jump to some verses. So here is what the text is telling us. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went to the temple of the Lord. The goats, verse 23, the goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly. And they laid their hands on them. the priests slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel. Because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. Verse 27. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship, while the singer sang and the trumpeteers played. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was complete. There is this incredibly significant link between creating environments for an awakening, which Hezekiah is doing when he begins to rebuild the temple and actually providing an opportunity for an encounter with God. It's not good to have one without the other. The two are so very much linked together, having an environment and then having an encounter with God himself. And I really like that this is making a move from something that obviously Hezekiah felt in his own heart, in his own spirit. He he had an encounter with God that pushed him for this renewal, but he doesn't keep it at just a personal level. He wants the whole community. He wants the corporate group that he's part of to experience what he has been experiencing on a personal level. And again, this is significant because he leads by example and and he encourages the leaders to be the one that lead first. Verse 20. Early the next morning, as King Hezekiah gathered, the city officials together and they went up to the temple of the Lord. Good leaders. And maybe this is just a takeaway tip for, for those who are leaders who are watching this. Good leaders will also always lead, but they will also lead other leaders. Good leaders lead. And good leaders lead other leaders. They're the ones that summon people to stand up and be counted. And this is significant because leaders need to show that sense of integrity through which what they're talking about is what they're walking in. Leaders need to be the ones that are setting that example that people are inspired to look at and say, I wanna live like that too. So Hezekiah is very smart. Now, he realizes that the key to to this awakening that is happening in the community has to start in the heart. It's not just outside tarting up with the worship and uh, adding some smoke machines and some spotlights and something that's fancy and just jazzing things up. No, he realizes this is something that needs to go deep down into the hearts of everybody. And therefore, he starts by summoning the leaders to come and this is an incredibly powerful thing. Early in the morning, there's no delay. There's no putting off. There's no excuses. There is a real sense of urgency and priority about what Hezekiah is doing. And when it comes to awakening, there isn't a sense in which we can postpone it and say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna wait for that spiritual awakening when I retire. I'm gonna do it when I feel I can take some time off. I'm gonna pursue God when I feel like everything is lined up in my life and things are just comfortable for me to seek the Lord. No, this is about now. This is about an urgency. This is about a desperation that says we got to get this happening. We've got to get this done. we got to pour out our hearts to all the people so they can embrace a renewing, fresh move of God. I wonder how often we miss out on an incredible opportunity of a personal or even corporate awakening because we're we're so full of excuses i'm just too tired i'm just too busy i've just got too much on i'm just going to do it some other time and it's just not the right time early the next morning king Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and they went up to the temple of the Lord. There is a sense of amazing togetherness that is happening here. And really, in an individualistic, selfish, consumer-driven society, this is exactly the kind of message we need to hear nowadays. We need to come together, and maybe we're beginning to feel the pain of what we've been pursuing, this rampant individualism. And now we're beginning to feel and we're getting a taste of what we wanted. And it's awful. We're missing people. We're missing being able to be together. And this is why it's so important that we rediscover what it means to be community, what it means to be united, what it means to lay down my preference for the sake of being part of a greater community and a greater body. And they're being led and all the public officials are setting an example and they are gathering together. They gathered the city officials together and they went up to the temple of the Lord. Again, hauntingly, I sometimes wonder if because of my individualism. That provides a blockage to an awakening in my community of faith, because I'm not willing to. Join in. I'm not willing to lay aside my excuses and inhibitions and to say I'm in. I'm in with my community. Sometimes something is missing out. This is the time to come together. This is a time to be urgent about it. This is a time to not make excuses and delays and plans for some other situation and context where it might be better for us. The time is now to pursue God. And they did that. They came to the temple of the Lord. Again, the focus of their attention wasn't a program. It wasn't a political or social program. It was about worship. Their focus was upward, vertical, like we looked at last week. Their focus was on the Lord. They came to the temple of the Lord. Again, I can't stress how important this is. Again, it's ironic. We live in a time where we seem to be A lot of people are furloughed at home. A lot of people do work from home. And it's a combination of being very busy and and being busy. And yet, somehow, it's hard to come together as God's people. So again, I want to say, let's make sure to get good priorities in. And coming together... We don't have a temple. <laughs> we 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 couldn't gather even if we wanted to. We don't have a temple, but we have the Zoom meetings, and in the Zoom meetings, the body of Christ comes together. The young and the old, we all come together. Are you part of that? Are you joining together in the Lord's presence? There's something very precious and powerful about that. And as they gather together, they they begin to offer those sacrifices. And I guess for somebody who's listening to this who's not versed. And what the heck's going on? They might be thinking, what what weird barbecue is going on there? What kind of weird animal cruelty is going on there? But this, for a Jewish person at the time, would have been something incredibly familiar. This would have been the reenacting of the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. As part of the worship for the Jewish people, they had that time of getting together. And as part of their worship, they had to have their sins dealt with. And in a very visual and and fairly brutal way, they would have the animals being sacrificed. And as the blood was flowing, that was the payment for the sins of the people. The blood was atoning. The blood was paying off the sin debt that people would have. And people would come and do this as a way of receiving, if you want, soul surgery, uh, taking out the tumours, taking the sin out of their lives. And this would have been neglected for a long time. Hezekiah's father would have neglected this. And this is a time when this is being, once again, after being forsaken for many years, re-established. And this is so significant because this was right at the very heart of the worship of the Jewish people. How will we deal with our sins? What can we do with them? What will happen? And therefore... That is being reinstated. And as they do that, they slaughter, they bring the burnt uh, sacrifices. And as that is, is going on in, at the end of verse 27, it says, Singing to the Lord also began accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of the king of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang and the trumpeteers played. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was complete. This was a sense, it's bizarre, isn't it, because everything about the soldiering of the animals is pretty brutal and sad and seemingly awful. But then it's being tagged afterwards by this celebration with the trumpeters playing and the people worshipping and the people bowing down until all the sacrifices were complete. But this is all very logical because this was the joy and the worship that was being released as a result of the people receiving their forgiveness, having their sin dealt with by the enactment of those sacrifices. This is so powerful because this is all about honesty. It's so hard to deal with the sin in our life. It's so hard to deal with all those things that we do wrong, things that we do wrong towards other people or things that we do wrong towards God. Our defense mechanisms go up really quickly and we tend to say, well, sin's me. And we tend to compare ourselves to people when it comes to sin that are worse than us so that we feel better about ourselves and we make excuses. Listen to what James is writing in the New Testament. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, that's a sin for them. I mean, seriously, if I was to do a sin evaluation on my life just on the previous week on, on what's been going on, I fall short every day of this. James is saying It's not even just the stuff that you do, it's even the stuff, the good stuff that you don't do, that you know you should be doing, and you could be doing, and you don't do it. James is saying that's a sin. And therefore, I don't think there's anybody that will be watching this that will feel any different than I am feeling. I am feeling sinful, and there's no excuse, there's no hiding around it. And this is a reality for us as well. And this is why it's so important, because you might say, what, Christy, what does this have to do with us? The, the Israelites celebrated on Yom Kippur on the day of atonement, the, the forgiveness for their sins, the slaughtering of the animals and the blood that was shed. What does this have to do with us? This is so significant because it's an, a great example of real honesty. They could have made excuses. They could have said, hey, this is not for us. They could have said, hey, why, why are we doing this? We haven't been doing this for many years. Why on earth are we doing this? This is humiliating. This is us admitting in front of all our families that we we really are sinful. But I love their honesty and I love their humility. That's the best way to deal with sin in our lives, to be honest about it and to be humble about it. And two again, go hand in hand. You you can't be honest unless you're humble about it unless you realize that you're not measuring up and you've got a problem. It's the AA kind of syndrome. Nobody goes to AA and as they sit in a circle and they share uh, uh, about the addiction, they stand up and say, hey, yeah, I've never touched a drop of alcohol in my life. No. Somebody that is willing to engage with an addiction would stand up and say, hey, my name is and I am an alcoholic. That's what sinners that cry out for help do in humility and in honesty. They admit they've got a problem and this is what is happening here. And that is key, in my opinion, to an awakening in our personal lives and in the lives of our communities. We need to be really humble and honest about the sin in our life. Of course, this is this is challenging because somebody might say, Well, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm I'm I've given my life to Jesus I know that Jesus died on the cross for me is it still real to me it is real to all of us because there's this amazing paradox that's going on in our life in which once we receive Jesus' forgiveness we are being declared righteous but the process of actually becoming a righteous person takes a lifetime until we see him face to face I'm still working progress or, yes, God has forgiven my sins, but there are still so many elements of my old life, the sinful life, the selfish life that are still part of my life, that are getting cleansed up, that are getting chucked out. And that's why this passage is so helpful. There are several dangers when it comes to sin in our life. One danger is the danger of despair where you look at a sin in your life, and I look at a sin in my life, and I go, I'm just a mess. I There's just no hope for me. I just mess up every time. Everybody's better than I am. And why would God want anything to do, want to have anything to do with me? God is just not interested in me because I am so, so bad. It's a kind of woe is me kind of attitude. And that's dangerous. The opposite of the spectrum is the the danger of just being in denial all the time and just saying, hey, I, I am not sinful, I am not like other people, I am much better. I am, I'm, the line that we sometimes use, I've not killed anybody, haven't slept with anybody's husband or wife, haven't robbed a bank, I'm not a bad person. And we're just living in denial. And that brings a toxic acceptance of the sin in our life that might not be those things that I've just said I didn't do, but there's loads of others. Gossip, judging other people, lying, stealing, so many other things that are in our lives. And somehow we have to veer away from both those extremes, from one that we're in despair and we think there's no forgiveness for us, and one where we're in denial and we're saying, hey, I haven't got anything to be forgiven about. And that's why again the example of this awakening is so powerful because what we need is we need that humble sensitivity when the spirit of god when the word of god are convicting us that means that they are they're they're putting the mirror in front of us and they're showing us what we're like and sometimes what we see is ugly You, you know those of us who struggle with our weight you know you see you stand on on the scales and you know, you don't like what you see, but it's not a scale's fault. <laughs> Sometimes we get angry with the scriptures or with the Holy Spirit when we get convicted, but it's not the fault of the scriptures or the Holy Spirit. It's 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 the sin that's in our lives that it's just showing what's inside that's being revealed. And we need that. We deeply need that mirror, which is the scripture. And the scripture, and and, and there's this triad of helpful things. One is the scripture is revealing our sinfulness. The spirit of God is working through the scripture to help us get it. And he, he, he gets at us. And then it's being in community. Being part of a community of faith where I can be held accountable. Where there's no hiding. Where there's a place of support and encouragement. And this is what's happening here. They're being convicted about their sin. And they're receiving the forgiveness for their sins. This is essential. And this is something that we have to fight constantly. This is not something that we do once and then it's sorted. It's gone. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament writes to the Colossians, in Colossians 3, verse 5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's the sin kind of nature. Sexual immorality... Impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So, what Paul is saying, if you want to deal with the sin in your life, this is going to be, this is going to be bloody. This is going to be a fight. He says, put to death. This is going to be brutal. You you've got to do something that's very intentional, and very intense. And he gives the examples of what those kind of things are. This is why it's so important to do what the people did then when they came and admitted their sins with the leaders leading the way. And then people following and then receiving the sacrifice for their forgiveness. Again, part of the same sort of uh, vein. The Apostle John this time is writing in the New Testament in 1 John 1 from verse 7 to verse 9. But if we walk in the light, that's if, you know, we're honest and we walk with Jesus as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is a beautiful explanation of the solution that me and you need to grab hold of. Obviously, as I said and hinted beforehand, you know, we're not living in Old Testament time. We're not like the Israelites. We're not required to get hold of a bull uh, and, and, or, or a lamb uh, or any other animal and sacrifice them. So what am I gonna do? What's my solution? What's my way forward? And John is very helpful into pointing out what that is and the thing that he's saying he says this is all about walking with Jesus and also having fellowship with one another this is essential so if I am having tolerated sin in my life that I'm hiding away and pretending it isn't there it's gonna harm my relationship with Jesus I am NOT walking in the light as he is in the light that's the implication And it's not just vertical, but it's also horizontal because he's saying we have fellowship with one another. Therefore, there is a serious potential that even my relationships horizontally will be affected if I have hidden sin, tolerated sin in my life that I'm not willing to acknowledge and get dealt with. But he's providing the solution and the solution is the blood of Jesus. He purifies us from all sin. And this is what happened at the cross, which we celebrated Good Friday, several weeks back. At the cross, Jesus gave his life and shed his blood to make a once and for all payment for our sin, anybody's sin, my sin, your sin, any type of sin, anything is forgivable once and for all. That's what's available, that's the cure. So what do we do? Again, John is stressing, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So anybody who's saying, "Hey," I don't need this. There's a serious chance we're deceiving ourselves. So here's what we do. We confess our sins and then God is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That means, and that confession that John is talking about isn't coming to confess it to me as the pastor or going to somebody else as a priest. This is coming to God. In fact, Jesus in Hebrew is called the great high priest. So we need to go to Jesus and confess our sins and then receive his gift of grace, his gift of forgiveness through his death on the cross. Why? Because God is faithful and he's just. And the promise is there. He will forgive us from our sins and purify us from our unrighteousness. There's a beautiful deal that comes here When we come to him and confess our sins, God, in his faithfulness and justice, because of Jesus' death on the cross, he will bring us both forgiveness. It's kind of a legal term. So therefore, our debt towards him is being cancelled. But also, he's bringing cleansing. And it's that Macbethian you know, bloodied hands that you keep on washing because you can't get rid of the stains that are there. It's that that happens physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's that cleansing that comes from our sins. So it's not just that they're canceled, but there's something very powerful that happens holistically to us, not just legally from a spiritual point of view, but also emotionally, psychologically. And that's an incredible, incredible promise. That we have and this is very much linked living in community i love what diddy bonhoeffer is saying about this he says a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother notes he's no longer alone by himself he experiences the presence of god in the reality of the other people that's so powerful that's what it is being in community it's experiencing those things together Ray Ortland gives us four very simple ways we repent. We, as John is saying, we confess our sins and bring it towards him. First, we are admitting I was wrong. Plain, honest, no evasions. Second, I am sorry. We're broken hearted, realizing the damage that is done. And this is, by the way, applicable to sins between us, not just. Sin towards God. Number three, we're saying it won't happen again. We are rebuilding trust for the future. And number four, we're saying, is there anything I can do to make it up to you? And really confessing our sins isn't just coming to God and saying, I'm really sorry I screwed up, will you forgive me? But it's also asking God, will you give me the power to make restoration where it's needed and bring about those changes that are necessary? There. Let me finish with a scene from Nikos Katsantakis' novel, Christ Crucified. There's a scene in which four village men confess their sins to one another in the presence of the Pope. Okay, I, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe you need to confess, you know, in the presence of the Pope. Just go with the novel. One of the men, Michaelis, cries out, How can God let us live on the earth? Why doesn't he kill us to purify creation? And then the Pope in the novel is replying to him and he's simply saying this, because Michaelis, God is a potter. He works with mud. That is an amazing assurance. We can come to God because God is faithful and just, as John said. We can come to God because God is willing to work with mud, with people like me and you. Let's be honest. Let's be bold. Let's assess our lives. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to search us. Let's admit the sin that comes to light. Let's accept his forgiveness. Let's come to him and do that both personally and as part of a community and see the grace of god be poured out over us let's pray together proverbs 28:13 says whoever conceals their sins does not prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy father we come before you with a realization that this is serious and we are bringing our sins to you with a deep sense of regret. And I pray that you will help us as we look at the scriptures and as we let the Holy Spirit search us, just reveal the stuff that needs to come out of our lives. At the same time, we draw near to you with a sense of this is safe to do that because you are working with mud. You are the potter that takes hold of people like us. I pray that you will give us the courage to confess, the humility to confess, but also the courage to fight sin as the spirit enables us by the power of the scriptures. I pray that the spirit of God will keep on shaping in us The image of Jesus, that as people meet us, they will not meet us, but they will meet Christ in us. And I also pray that the Spirit of God will make us shine with a light that comes from Him being alive in our lives. Amen.